93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today, we are going to be talking to Dan Behar, the man behind Destroyer, the man who has put out a lot of great indie rock records for over 20 years, a reliable institution even. I called him up last week to talk about the latest Destroyer record. It's called Ken, and uh, I like it a lot. (laughs) I feel like that's a really boring thing to say about Destroyer records because I like most Destroyer records, if not all of them. You have Kaput, which I think is a great record from 2011. You have Destroyer's Rubies from 2006. I think that might be my favorite. You had Poison Season that came out a couple years ago. You had Street Hawk from the early 2000s. You have one of my sort of unsung favorite records by him, which is Your Blues from 2004. I've talked to Dan a couple of times. He's always a fun guy to talk to. He's like an interesting dude. He has a very dry sense of humor. You know, I think he has this persona of being a very sort of self-serious artiste type. But I actually think he's a pretty funny guy. And I don't think he takes himself as seriously, maybe, as he's perceived to be. And I think that comes across in our conversation. We talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about Bob Dylan. And I always end up talking about Bob Dylan with him, probably because we're both Bob Dylan fans. But uh, we talked about Dylan. We talked about his songwriting process. We talked about Donald Trump because it's 2017 and you have to talk about Donald Trump. Uh, It's the law now. Uh, We talked a little bit about that and sort of the influence on the record. I mean, the record is, it's a pretty menacing sounding record. There's a lot of synthesizers on it. There's sort of like a new order 80s thing to the songs. They're kind of funky, they're kind of danceable, but there's this feeling of dread that emanates from the music and from the lyrics. Um, which we talk about again in our conversation. You know, again, not totally intentional on his part, but, you know, I think in times like these, there's an osmosis that happens, and there's a lot of dread in the air. And if you're an artist, you know, you're, you're an open person, and uh, you can't help but kind of suck that into your brain. And whether you're doing it consciously or not, I think it comes out. And, you know, we've had a lot of ominous-sounding music come out this year that just seems like sort of environmental byproducts of what's going on. And I think this Destroyer record is another example of it. But it's a strong addition to, I think, a really great discography, like one of the great discographies in indie rock uh, from the last 20 years. So it was great to talk to Dan, and uh, I'm excited to get to that conversation. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week, and it is ZipRecruiter. You need a great talent for your business, but short on time. You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now you can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com celebration. That's ZipRecruiter.com celebration. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash celebration. So me and Dan, we talked about Ken, we talked about Dylan, we talked about sort of political and social claustrophobia. We talked about lots of fun things. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dan Behar of Destroyer. I thought of you recently because I interviewed you a couple years ago uh, when Poison Season came out. And somehow during the course of that interview, we ended up talking about Shot of Love. And you were talking about the song, The Groom Still Waiting at the Altar, being one of your personal favorites or a song you like a lot. And I don't know if you saw this, but there's, there was a box that recently announced of Dylan's gospel era. Did you see that? I, I just saw that announced, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty exciting, actually. It is. You know, it, it's funny because I feel like, you know, that was just a couple years ago that we talked, but I feel like sort of talking positively about that era, even then, 
was maybe somewhat of a contrary opinion. I mean, there wasn't a lot of people talking about it. I know for me, like I'm a big Dylan fan. I hadn't really listened to that era. That was like one of the eras I, I skipped over. And then just like in the past year, I've, I've gone back to those records, Shot of Love, Saved, uh, Slow Train Coming, and I've really come to appreciate those albums. Like, What is it about that era? And I know you also talked about 80s and 90s, Dylan, too, maybe being a little sort of underappreciated. What is it about that era of, the, of his career that, you've, that you like? I think it has his best songwriting and his best singing. <laughs> I mean, what turn people off and this usually happens, I guess. And, um, I guess singers get older and songwriters get older is uh, no longer being able to wield the band in the same way. Right. And disastrous production choices. <laughs> Right, and and just the fact that you that a listener becomes so accustomed to someone's um, the sound of someone's voice and the way that they express themselves that you become just like uh, kind of numb numb to it, I guess. You know, right? Ro- rolling into rolling into decade three of that guy. Um, I think also there's extreme, you know, there's extreme valleys for me as like the song became, um, more tremendous, the misfires became just like, uh, just terrible to gaze upon, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, without, without trying to catalog, catalog like really bad. Uh, Dylan songs in the 1980s, you know, the, the bad ones are bad. Right. Well, and I mean, I think you make a good point too about his singing at that time. I, and I think for me, what opened it up that gospel period was uh, I discovered that there, there was a there was a concert that was like often bootleg. It was from Toronto in 1980, which I think is actually going to be on this box set where he performs with his band, and he had a great band at that time, and just his vocals in that on that tour and in that show in particular, just incredible, like very soulful and very open. Yeah. Um, I mean, have you dug into that stuff at all? Like the live stuff from that period? Oh, you know, a little bit, but not, not too much. You know, I, I still, there's still pockets of that guy where I draw a blank and I discover things late in the game. It's kind of exciting. Yeah. But, um, I've never, I've never, I've never really been pre-exhaustive with any artist as far as just like uh, just, just diving into everything that's available. Uh, and like I said, with I go through different phases with Bob Dylan, you know. Yeah. It's not like a, a it's not like a constant thing in my life. I mean, I'll put on a record because I know it well, and maybe that record provides a certain comfort for me. But uh, as far as me attempting to blow my own mind, <laughs> it's only, um, you know, there's like definitely like eras of Destroyer where you can tell I was, I was just like grappling with what it was that he was trying to do. Right. Or not even trying to do, just doing, because I'm never quite sure where the trying part is with him. Uh, and then other parts where I'm just kind of, like, these other days I'm just oblivious to. I mean, if I had to guess, I would say Ruby's was maybe more of a Dylan record for you. Would that be... Yeah, that, you know, that was probably the apex for me, uh, where, you know, this whole idea of just breathing out words the way that he did, I I got a taste of it, and I felt I could kind of taste that style of writing and that style of singing down in a way that, for me at the time, came really, really naturally, you know? Right. Um, just like, uh, just writing in like a, like a, a mix. Um, like a systemic assault, flashing images, you know? 
yeah. that somehow somehow correspond to a certain version of the world. And right. Uh, I think one of the fascinating things about an artist when they have you know a longer career and they have a lot of albums is that there are these different eras that. Uh, you know, where there, you can appreciate one era more than the other, or you can go back, yeah. you know, 10, 15 years later and, and discover I mean, stuff. Like for the you... I, sorry, the main thing I noticed also is that the, the Dylan industry, and there is one, you know, whether it's like an academic industry or just like, it's so important to America's cultural sense of self-worth. Right. That, um, you know, they can only exhaust blood on the tops or like uh you know highway 61 or blonde, you know like these kind of canonized records they need something to do you know <laughs> <laughs> so you need, you need to at some point stop saying um stop saying that uh you know that infidels was a piece of shit because um you need stuff to you need stuff to like explore you need to excavate Right and um, and and like right, you know, and see the and see the guts of it and all, all this stuff that that like the Dylan business is you know based on. Yeah, I mean, I think at some point people feel like, well, what else am I going to say about Blonde on Blonde? You know, mm-hmm. it's already been said, but there are other regions of maybe this man's mythology or career where it's less trod territory, and I can maybe yeah. you know say something more interesting. Um, yeah. What I was going to say before is kind of to bring it back to, to your own career here. Are there any albums that you've made that you feel like were maybe uh, misunderstood at the time uh, that you think are ripe for like uh, rediscovery? <laughs> <laughs> like, like what, what, what's your, what's your uh, shot of love? Do you have a shot of love you think in your career? I mean... Because I think I have an answer for this. I mean, maybe maybe there's an answer, like, but there's so many different things at work. I mean, uh, destroyer as a thing that you're supposed to consume as like as as records. It was such a gradual a gradual evolution, you know, from like. Putting out a record that a few people in Vancouver cared about, to maybe putting out a record that a couple people in Canada heard, to like the third record when maybe some college radio stations at WFMU or something like that, you know, heard or like some of the other music, like, and then this one called Street Hop, a seduction which uh, a few more people glommed onto, but also existed in the shadow of a record that had come out a few months earlier called Mass Romantic. Um, and then, you know, I guess after Street Hop, I put out a couple records when I first signed some to, to merge records, which, um, were kind of wildly different and kind of firmly rejected for, for you know, wildly varying reasons. Uh, and that was probably me where I was just like, um, most at home was just the idea of the artist against the world, you know? Yeah. Those would be just night in the blues. Right. Yeah. I mean, your blues would be the one that I would, I would bring up. I, I love that record. Um, that was like one of the first records I think of yours that I ever heard too. I mean, I mean, along with street Hawk and like those early two thousands records, but, um, in a way your blues reminds me a little bit of, this latest record that you put out just because of the synths, the synth sounds on it. I mean, your blues, I think is, I mean, it, it, it's not that similar to this record, but it, it reminded me a little bit of that in a way. Yeah. I mean, I don't totally hear it, but I think also cause I'm privy to the way that your blues was made, which is just in a very insane way, like just an acoustic guitar and a, and a MIDI module. Um, while this record was made with, you know, honest to God synthesizers and drum machines and samplers. Um, and the blues, you know, 
it but very much laid the groundwork of the typical destroyer synth scene, which is like plush pads, um, new age strings, uh, just stuff that I've always loved and always will love. While this record, because they're, I think, because a lot of it represents Josh's aesthetic as a producer, um, the synths are darker and much harder and percussive and in your face uh, in a way that is not like it doesn't really come naturally to me, you know. It, uh, and in a lot of ways, your blues, I really did hear those sounds and, and think that it sounded like an orchestra to me. Right. Um, so it was supposed to be kind of this exercise, I guess. Not an exercise, so just like it. I like the sound of it, but it definitely has this like hollowed out maximalism to it, you know, where there's these kind of baroque arrangements floating around in the ether, but then not really much at the at the core, you know, just like a kind of acoustic guitar off in the distance, usually, and that was about it. Well, and I remember, you know, when I heard your blues, my feeling was, okay, this guy, he's not just going to do sort of the indie rock singer-songwriter thing he's going to make records that sound like their own worlds on every time he does something. It's going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be what you expect. And it may be filled with sounds that sound alien to you, but he's going to repurpose them in a way that makes it work, you know, in this context. And I feel like you've done that in a lot of records. Like you've taken maybe sounds that were outmoded or like out of fashion and you've kind of put them in that your own spin on it and put it in this context where it becomes something else. And to me, like your blues, I don't know if it was the beginning of that, but it's what I feel like when I look back on your career, it seems like, oh, this is where he was really doing it in sort of a more radical way, maybe early on. Yeah. I mean, I listen to it. The singing sounds pretty crazy to me. It sounds like uh, maybe like a lot of the singing on the earlier records, but especially especially your blues has this kind of... Um, I don't know. It has this, I just sound like this mini demon or something. I, <laughs> it has like a demonic. <laughs> Aside from the very last song, which is in some ways, I mean, I, I like that record a lot, but there's a song at the very end of it that I've always been really attached to because it's after you're, after this kind of very carefully constructed, um, dramatic thing there's a song which i thought always sounded the most like me of any song that i've ever recorded and that's called certain things you ought to know and it's um like a really nice tonic to the rest to the rest of that album and maybe to all of the destroyer music that it led up to it yeah all right we have more of my conversation with dan behar of destroyer coming up in a moment but before we get to that i want to tell you about another sponsor for this week's episode and that is our friends at Brooklinen. Now, you spend a third of your life in your sheets. Are they taking care of you the way they should be? With brooklinen.com, you can get the highest quality sheets and bedding you deserve at a price that won't keep you up at night. Buying great sheets is an easy way to upgrade your life. The right sheets can make or break a good night's sleep. Even though quality sheets make for quality sleep, most high-end bedding is marked by more than 300% by the time it reaches the store. Brooklinen makes quality luxury sheets and bedding accessible to everyone. Now, I love my Brooklinen sheets, and I want you to try these sheets because I know you'll love them too. Now, brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code CELEBRATION at brooklinen.com. So again, just go to brooklinen.com, enter in the promo code CELEBRATION, you get $20 off and free shipping. brooklinen.com and enter in the promo code CELEBRATION to get your deal. All right, let's get back to me and Dan Behar talking about the new Destroyer record. Let's talk about this record, Ken. You know, and you, and you, you touched on this a little bit a, a couple minutes ago, talking about sort of the dark sound of the synths on the record. And I feel like in general, there's sort of a menacing quality to a lot of the songs on this album, musically and also lyrically. And I don't want to impose this thing on the record. I feel like everyone every kind of culture writer is doing this to everything that they see trying to impose you know trump on everything 
Um, and I know you're Canadian, of course, so you know you have a different perspective on this. But I did notice that you started making the record in November of 2016, uh, and wrapped up in uh, the early winter of 2017. And that you know that there's references in the songs to like to revolution and Che Guevara and Rome and Renoir's The Rules of the Game. These sort of like class commentaries and, and this idea of maybe the class system falling apart. Um, do you feel like any of that sort of political stuff that was going on at the time that you were making the record, do you feel like that seeped into the album at all as you were making it? Um, it's hard to say, you know, like I did a solo tour last fall um, where I got in a car in Spokane with my acoustic guitar and I drove to Florida and then drove up to Pittsburgh and flew home. That all happened a few weeks before the election. And I was just, you know, driving around by myself and playing these solo shows in small places I'd never been before. I was playing some of these new songs in front of people to see what that was like, because I'd never done that before. And I was going back to, you know, my hotel room by myself and just, and demoing the songs on Ken. Um, I don't know if that kind of isolation within uh, kind of a, a crazy time period in a place that's crazy affected the record. Um, I, I feel like most of it was maybe written before that trip. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think those are terms that come up a lot in destroyer music in general, maybe not in Poison Season, because that seemed in some ways a bit more intimate of a record, but uh, on other records, for sure. And I will say that I'd like to think of myself as mildly clairvoyant. And probably just foresaw all of this. What was that? I'm sorry. I, I, I sorry, I said that I like to think of myself as mildly clairvoyant and probably just foresaw all, all of this that we are now dealing with. Right, you had like a Nostradamus thing going on with this record. But I don't know, it seems because the songs are so, the, to me the songs seem much, they seem much simpler, more direct, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe those terms really flash out at you a lot more. It does seem to be really consistent of like, when you look at it, well, yeah, I mean, because I think of like... It's just, it seems to be constantly a world, uh, uh, describing a world that is like decadent right. or, vi- or violent or insane or depraved, you know, like, it's just, it's constantly just like um, madness or people soiling themselves <laughs> or people who are completely lost inside of, inside of, you know, a tomb, which is a castle or... You know, like a lot of these kind of images that are kind of classical, but you couldn't help tie into, especially um, the current state of North America, but maybe a lot of what's going on in the world. And the fact that there's always this narrator who's like seeking, uh, you know, isolation or distance, or, um, you know, who just wants to like, wander off from from what is like an insane throng uh, <laughs> or right. just like high, high from, from a crowd that is like uh, ravenous or something. Well, and, and, um, I, and I feel like that yeah. translates musically too because I mean you've had uh, like apocalyptic images on other Destroyer records but I think of like Kaput being a very warm and maybe romantic sounding record and Poison Season is a very sort of you know, it's very open sounding and, you know, it sounds like people playing in a room and, you know, there's a certain yeah. kind of size to it. And this record feels claustrophobic, you know, and again, I, I, I go back to the word menacing, you know, there, yeah. there's this sort of feeling of dread coming out of the songs. I feel like, I feel, I don't know. It's, I think it's cool. I don't, I feel like Josh, it's definitely like in some ways the most, you know, the most kind of goth sounding destroyer record, but <laughs> by a mile, you know. Um, and I probably would have had a lot more 
of what I thought of as uh, kind of dreamy, softer edge sounds. So it's good that I feel like it's good that you put them in, you know, because in a lot of ways it speaks to the words um, in a way that's much closer to um, to my to my musical aesthetic when I when I get my hands on a synthesizer or a few guitar pedals, you know, I was seem to, I was seem to have a setting aimed at a certain place, which <laughs> is maybe yeah, a lot rosier than how Ken ended up sounding. Right. You know, I, you've talked a lot in the past about being, I guess, an impulsive songwriter. Like you're, like you've often said that you don't, you've never sat down to like consciously write a song that, and you know, that words just sort of come to you quickly. And I guess maybe you scrawl them down as they come to you. I mean, I imagine if you write like that, that you're not necessarily, you know, writing with the thought of I'm writing about a, sp- a specific topic or something. Um, I mean, do those meanings come after? Like, do you ever look back on the songs and go, oh, okay, this is what I was, this must have been what I meant when I wrote this song? Uh, you know, I don't really think about them too much until I'm forced to. <laughs> right. Uh, I will say that I see patterns in language that I would, I would probably um, qualify as like, my hangups of a specific time. Mm. Um, you know, for some reason, like in poison season, I always saw a lot of like espionage (laughs) language. And, uh, you know, in, in Kaput, I, I always thought of it as like a very dreamy deathbed, um, record. But, but kind of like a lullaby, just looking back at a life and and just um, images and situations kind of coming at you through like a, a, a kind of morphic haze, you know, like a medicated haze. Right. And, uh, and yeah, for some reason, these early days still, but with Ken, I, the, the voices seem very clear to me for the most part. And like, um, I feel like in other, in like other destroyer records, there's always been an element of a, of like the city burning in the background, but it's always been in a kind of romantic way. Uh, you know, like a, a world in flames as kind of a romantic backdrop while that is that element seems missing from Ken for better or for worse. Uh, you know, it, it, it just seems like Ken has a lot more imagery of just like someone, um, looking through people at the Coliseum. Yeah. 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 I mean, this process that I guess I'm making you do right now, where you have to go back and try to explain your songs. And, and, and by the way, I mean, I think a lot of artists are like that. They don't necessarily want to intellectualize their art or, you know, be analytical about it, or it's not natural to them anyway. Um, I mean, do you take any value from that? Do you, do you feel like you learn about what you do or does it in, in a way get in the way of what you do? Because I think it's so- it gets in the way of what I do because what I aspire to is, and if you're talking about writing, I mean, I, I like talking about it in musical terms because that's actual work, you know, like some people are the opposite. They'll just sit down and um, they'll just dream up a song in the studio, get their hands on everything. And for me, you know, the part that seems to come in the most natural way is stringing these words together with some kind of melodic phrasing attached. And then comes the part of like, well, what the hell kind of world is that song supposed to inhabit with a sonic world, right? Right. Uh, and that to me is quite arduous. That's not that's not a natural thing. And so, I feel like I can talk about it in terms of like steps or in terms of like uh, like kind of, some kind of conceptual framework. But the kind of writing I gravitate towards, and maybe it's just like 
um, some form of narcissism because I feel like it's the thing that comes easiest to me and therefore uh, it's good. I mean, it's, it's usually just like dream language, you know, just just like the 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 kind of upper the upper echelon <laughs> of of what poetic can mean, you know, right. where it's just like a veil a veil is lifted from the world and something else is revealed. Um, I know that topical writing is popular in songs. There's like a strong American tradition of that, um, and I have no part in that. Yeah. I mean, is there also a fear, too, that if you are too self-conscious about writing, that in some ways it'll, like, kill the muse? (laughs) Like, the words won't come because you're maybe thinking about it too much? I do have a thing where I have romanticized or, I don't know, like, um, even fetishized the idea of keeping office hours, you know, or just, like, attacking it properly in a writerly way, uh, like Leonard Cohen or Nick Cavewood or someone like that, right? Right. Um, where you just sit down and you you work at it and you edit it away and, uh, and you whittle it down and it's perfect. Um, I do have this fear that if I have to try it, it means it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd like to impart that fear on the rest of the world. If you're trying to follow me, it's not good. <laughs> All right, we have more of my conversation with Dan Behar coming up. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to tell you about our friends at Harry's. Now, if you're a man like me, you have to shave every day or every other day. And uh, shaving is probably a pain because let's, let's face it, you have to buy the razors and they probably cost too much or they're not very good quality or you have to go to the drugstore to buy this stuff and it just takes a lot of time. Well, Harry's makes it easy, and I'm going to make it even easier for you guys. Now, they're offering this free trial set to my listeners, and in this set, you're going to get a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. This is a $13 value that you're going to get for absolutely nothing. All you have to do is pay for the shipping. Now, how do you get this? Well, you go to harrys.com backslash rock. Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock. And this is how you get the deal for, if you're one of my listeners. So don't tell me that I never did anything for you guys. I'm giving you the, the, the gift of free razors here. All you need to do is pay for the shipping. Again, go to harrys.com backslash rock to get your free trial set today. All right, here's me and Dan talking more about Destroyer. Well, let's talk about the music on the record because, you know, and I touched on this before, I think one of the things that makes you unique, especially among... I mean, like singer-songwriter type artist, is that all of your records have a distinct sort of sonic personality or musical personality. Like, you can put on a song from one of your records and you know, oh, that's from Kaput or that's from Ruby's. Like, it's very distinct, I think, in your career. Talk about the evolution of that, I guess. Like, when you go into a record, do you have a sense of what kind of record you want to make or does that happen in the studio from just experimenting with the songs? Usually, I usually go in with an idea. Um, either the idea uh, is based on something quite concrete, like say with Ruby's or um, or Street Hawk. You know, it's just like let's let's record this band. I like the way they're sounding. Um, Poison season would be like the, you know, kind of the pinnacle of that. Yeah. But poison season became a, a kind of like a, in some ways kind of became a war between um, this vision of like old world orchestrations and just also, and then against a representation of, of what the eight of us sounded like on stage. But usually it's an idea that I have going in and also because it's always a collaboration on, on the music side and in the studio, that idea will, you know, um, morph beyond any recognition 
or, you know, sometimes we'll nail it or get pretty close. Um, but usually the songs go in a direction that I don't predict. Yeah. Uh, generally because I like, I, I like to give people a lot of freedom in the studio and that's kind of some of the stuff that excites me the most. I mean, uh, also, I think that anyone who's ever learned Destroyer song can tell you that they're actually it's like one of the most static catalogs that there is. I feel like I can do all these different things with the songs themselves because that's like a sonic, you know, cause that's like a sonic approach or a production approach, but the songs themselves, um, I feel like there's, there's very few collections of songs. that sound that could sound more like themselves in the story of songs. <laughs> Does that make any sense? No, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's like when I hear, when I write one or when I hear one, it, uh, it's like, oh man, that really, I mean, this is like 20 years now, but it's like that really sounds like a Destroyer song. Right. Uh, and, you know, when I bring a song in for the band to learn or something, it's just like a sea of eye rolls, probably. It's like, <laughs> here we go again. But I, so, I mean, I feel, yeah, like you I, could, I feel like you can say the same about any songwriter, though, that has actually like a distinct personality, you know, and it's not necessarily, you know, they're, they're sort of writing the same kind of songs, but they go through different periods where they like sounds, you know, they go through or different yeah, production techniques or something. That's and, possible. But the first thing that I notice when I think about songs is how generic they are and how indistinguishable they are one song from the next. Yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe that's true, but. I feel like, um, and I'm not even saying this in a good way, but I, sometimes I wish I could sound or write, uh, I could write in a way that just felt more universal, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, but, and then at the end of the day, I'm kind of into the fact that I have the style. Because, uh, you know, the norm, the norm is just like, it's just an algorithm, really. Well, I mean, it's interesting because like, I, I read this story recently talking about how streaming services are changing songwriting and particularly pop songwriting. And there was a thing in there talking about how th th that sort of universal song that talks to everyone, that's actually kind of going out of fashion. And now it's the sort of intimate songs, the songs that, or at least the songs that seem intimate and direct. Um, that can communicate that uh, because people are listening to music on headphones uh, and on their laptops. And of course, there's also all the things about how, you know, a song has to be immediate, has to have all the information that's pertinent to the song within the first 30 seconds and all that stuff. Um, but I don't know, I mean, do you think about that at all, about how technology is changing songwriting, about how people hear music, how that's sort of changed the art form? I mean. Does that enter into your thinking at all, or is that just a whole different world <laughs> that you? Don't I mean, think I about? could, I could, uh, I could try and talk about it, but I would just sound like some old guy probably talking about something he doesn't really know about. <laughs> right. um, as far as when I'm actually doing it, doing it, it it couldn't. I wouldn't even know how to incorporate it into my thoughts. Right. Um, also, I just think that like it's kind of not that interesting like the first uh you know you could probably like analyze the first 30 seconds of a cheap trick song and um it would push all the same buttons you know it's just like because pop music is is fair game in the last um because of like the advances that cultural studies have made <laughs> right. or the way that capitalism has assimilated cultural studies it's fair game now to talk about um, top 40 music in this fairly heady kind of way. Right. But really the meat of what you're talking about is still, it's still the same old stuff. It's still the same old shit. Right. I want to ask you about something that you talked about. And I know, you know, in the past you've had fun with your one sheets, you know, and one sheets, for those who don't know, it's the biographies that are packaged with records when they go out to music critics. So this may be BS, but I, I did think it was interesting in, in the bio for this record that you talked about Suede, the 90s Britpop band, and the song The Wild Ones. 
which is on their 94 record Dogman Star. And, uh, it, and, and that being at least an inspiration for the title of the record, because apparently Ken was an alternate title for the Wild Ones. I mean, were you having fun with that, or is any of that actually pertinent to this record? Look, <laughs> A, I've never had fun with a one sheet. I, if, if I've ever written one, and I refuse to say whether I have or I haven't, <laughs> uh, it's been out of complete despair. And, um, and merge records will pay, <laughs> but in the case of this record, what happened was I never, ever would normally address the title of an album. You know, I generally like it as kind of like, a. I just like, I like album titles to kind of um, contain some sort of mystery or like something that can be inhabited, you know? Right. Um, but I, right off the bat, after telling a few people what the title of the album was, was made to feel such dread about people thinking I'd like written a record about Barbie and Kendall's. <laughs> um, that I felt that I had to address it. And so I did. And I, and I, and I told the story of where the inspiration for the name came from, Yeah, which was, it's true that I was like scrolling through, I don't know, the credits or like some kind of Dogman star deluxe package. And, you know, this was generally considered to be, you know, one of the best suede songs, if you care about that. Uh, and a song I really love this kind of, really grand depiction of, um, you know, that, that English style of like gutter grander yeah. that only they can do. <laughs> right. Um, the song, the wild ones, which has a, you know, like kind of an over the top, um, melodramatic kind of tragic name, the wild ones. Originally the demo for it had this name, Ken, which seems so modest and all, personal all of a sudden. And in, in some ways made the song seem so much more mysterious to me. And I was just into the idea more than Suede, because I wasn't thinking about Suede at all during the making of this record. Um, I was just thinking about how language transforms things physically for us. You know, how like I saw these three letters and all of a sudden I was concocting kind of, you know, hidden narratives and secret meanings in this song, which I thought I knew so well. And I also just like, you know, mostly what happens with me is, you know, this happened with Kaput. I just kind of like the sound of a certain grouping of letters. Yeah. You know, Ken to me sounded not just like old fat, old fashioned British sounding, like kitchen sink, kind of a lost English name, but also kind of had this hard, brittle sound that I associated with like Beckett or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it just stuck, it stuck in my mind. Um, but if it wasn't for the fear of this kind of like Mattel fear <laughs> of the Ken doll, um, you know, I never would have written that down on paper. And definitely when I was in Europe talking about the record, I was made to feel foolish uh, for having ever thought that, uh, you know, that I'd made some Barbie record. <laughs> Well, I would say that, you know, you just talked about the title for a couple of minutes there, but I feel like the, the mystery of the title is still retained. You know, I, I think don't think, you're right. I don't think you've spoiled it by talking about it just now. Cause I think you talked about it in a way that still keeps it ambiguous enough. And I also like, I mean, and I know you said you didn't really think about suede with this record, but I did like you bringing that up and maybe this is me making my own connection, but just Brett Anderson as a singer, the theatricality of his vocal style reminds me a little of the theatricality aspect of what you do as a singer. You know, it's weird because when they first happened, um, it was, it was his, it was his delivery, which I kind of rejected outright. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, this is in the early nineties still where, you know, that's the time when, when I first turned my back on, the UK music scene, which, you know, for the, 
for the five or six previous years was all I listened to. You know, that's really my introduction to music is through like UK indie bands. And then, you know, after Slam and Enchanted came out, you know, I just stopped listening to that stuff. And uh, Britpop in general seemed like drama students, you know, you know, there's like all, there's all sorts of pejorative. There's a lot of negative connotations around it. I wish I kind of paid more attention at the time, but that was not what my nineties was going to look like. <laughs> right. um, one thing I did always love was I, Bernard, Bernard Butler's guitar playing. I, I still think he's probably like the best guitar player of his generation. You know? but, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm late to suede, you know, like suede and the doors, those are, you know, things that I'm late to, but, um, uh, I do really love dog man star. It's, um, you know, it does, it, it does have this kind of like beautiful desolation to it. And also just, there's so obviously a strange tug of war going on in the production of the record that you end up with, with this kind of like, um, pulverized Frankenstein beast of an album, uh, that I don't think reflects anybody's intentions at all. It's just, it's such a weird sounding record for 1994. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, but I, when I, when I was thinking about Ken stuff going in, I was specifically really thinking more about the bands from when I first started getting into music from like the mid late eighties. Yeah. Like, and what would those bands be? Well, I mean, just John Hughes soundtracks, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like to be, to be brutally honest about it. Right. Um, you know, I guess I, I, you know, so aside from things like new order and the Smiths, which I feel like they are, their specter can be felt on a lot of destroyer records whether people know that or not. I know they're there. So I wasn't really listening to them so much, but maybe just stuff that I hadn't really thought about or listened to at all in the last 25 years, you know, um, you know, bands who like, there wasn't too many of them, but there was some that had kind of like a druggy mystic poet edge to them, like the house of love yeah, or the church, you know? Groups that were not considered cool to like, um, but I liked. Uh, you know, it wasn't cool to like the House of Love the way it was cool to like Felt or something like that. <laughs> right. Uh, or you know, I was thinking a lot about um, you know McCulloch's solo record Candleland. You know, it had this like kind of terrible late '80s tinny quality, which I think you know was a new wave guy dabbling in synthesizers and drum machines in it for his like mature record, you know? Yeah. He was like always like a very dramatic singer, but that, that record, he, he kind of mellowed out a lot. And in some ways his delivery is almost folky. You know, you can tell he's getting into Leonard Cohen records or something. Right. Just records of like, of a dubious nature, which I hadn't thought about in a long time, yeah. but I knew were like at my core. Yeah, definitely. So this is like your druggy mystic record. They're all going to be that from here on in. <laughs> That's all I got left. I mean, all I try and do now is channel the purity of um, of the doors, kind of like that quality of pure poetry. Yeah. Though the only, you know, last time I said that in public, it took me half an hour to convince the person that I was serious. <laughs> I, I, see, I'm taking you. I'm I'm taking you at your word that you're going to be riding the snake, for, like for the rest of your career. I don't, I don't really know what it's like. I mean, it could be a really ugly thing to get into the doors in your 40s. You know, <laughs> it's generally something you're supposed to have grown out of by the time you're 20. Yet. But uh, I'm just I'm just getting ready to go deep into it. Yeah, I, you know, uh, and, and I, I'm sorry, exploitive. I mean, you might be joking. I, I know for me, like, I loved The Doors when I was 14, and then I hated them for about 25 years. And recently, I, I've come back to sort of reappreciating it. And maybe it's just nostalgia for my 14-year-old self, but 
Yeah, mine's not based on nostalgia at all because they didn't register with me. So it's yeah. just like I just am purely analytically um, looking at the at at the songs and being not by all of them because there's so many terrible ones, but the good ones uh, are so good. And I'm always shocked that there's not more there's not more groups who try and kind of try and take on that that tradition but i guess it's hard to be like as committed to poetry as jim morrison was yeah and and to risk in you know mockery you know i think that maybe holds people back you know you have to have a certain bravado to totally go out on that limb and write though that kind of decadent poetry you know where I yeah, think... but I feel like people are going out on other limbs, which are 10 times more terrible. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just like, you just have to choose the right limb. Right. Well, I just want to say right now, I, I support your Doors phase. If you make a Doors record after this one, I'm, you know, if you get a keyboard player and do jazzy solos and stuff, I'm, I'm fully on board. I think that'd be awesome. I should have probably never, never said anything because... <laughs> When my cowardice, you know, when I when I check when I chicken out last minute, I'm sure I'll be reminded at some point how this record is supposed to be a Doors record, and it doesn't sound anything like that. <laughs> I see you're locked in though. Now you have to do it. Yeah, so. I know. I know. Um, well, Dan, uh, you know, this record can. I, it's another great record. You've made a lot of great records, and I, uh, my hats off to you. And, and thanks again for talking with me, man. It, it was really great uh, chatting with you. Okay, well, thank you. All right, man. Well, hey, take it easy. Yeah, we'll see you later. All right, that was me and Dan Behar talking about lots of fun stuff. He's really really great to talk to. I I always have a good time talking to Dan. I think he's a really funny guy. Sometimes it's hard to know when he's joking. He's like a super, he has like one of the driest sense of humors, I think, uh, not only in conversation, but obviously in his songs. Um, But it's really great. I, I get a kick out of him. <laughs> so I appreciate him coming on the podcast. Uh, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you know, we would not have a podcast without your support. So thank you so much for listening every week, for talking about us on social media, for spreading the word and preaching the Celebration Rock Gospel. Please know that I appreciate it. And uh, I'm really grateful that you guys are out there because without you, there would be no one to talk to. I'd be talking to myself. I guess I'd be talking to Derek here in the studio and that's fun, but it's fun to have you guys out there too. So thank you again. And, uh, this was a great episode. I had a great time. So thank you for listening and, uh, we will talk to you again next week.